Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. This is Justin Schieber. Jeremy, Dave, Luke, and myself hope you had a pleasant holiday season with a a minimal amount of those awkward religious family situations that we all treasure so very much. We have some very exciting episodes planned this year, but if you like the show, we need your help in getting the word out. Link to us on your Facebook, on your Twitter, or on your blog. Remember to link to the YouTube page where we recently released some very rare visuals of the Reverend Carl Sagan. Recently, I was invited onto a popular UK Christian radio show called Unbelievable. On that show, I debated an Anglican curate by the name of John Allister on the topic of the Amalekite genocide. And Justin Brierley, the host of the show, was gracious enough to allow me to share the audio with you today. And so, in this episode, you will first hear the actual debate, and then that will be immediately followed by Justin Brierley reading email responses to that debate that came in over that first week after it had aired. After that, I will offer some additional critical comments about John's position, comments I was unable to bring out on the show because of structure and time constraints. So... Uh, here's the debate. You're unbelievable. Well, unbelievable. Is it unbelievable to put those two things together? Uh, what amounts to, in many people's eyes, a genocide with the God of love that Christians claim uh, to be represented in the Bible. Uh, the first, first Samuel chapter 15, probably one of the hardest passages in the whole of Scripture to reconcile with the idea of a God of love. It describes God apparently commanding through Samuel the slaughter of men, women and children in the Amalekite tribe and that commandment being carried out by Saul and the army of Israel. So how can Christians who take these passages seriously reconcile it with the God of love and forgiveness we see in Jesus? Is God evil at the end of the day? Uh, Well, to help us look through this and to have a good debate on it, John Allister is the vicar of St. Jude's Church in Nottingham. He's got a background in apologetics, formerly taught physics before being ordained. Well, he says the slaughter of the Amalekites is a real tough one uh, and doesn't, though, ultimately conflict with a God of love. We need to understand the context. We shouldn't miss important nuances in the story. And this is part of a bigger story about what God is doing through Israel in the Old Testament. Justin Sheba is an atheist. Uh, He's a co-host of the popular atheist podcast, Reasonable Doubts, and we'll get him to tell us a little bit more about himself and what he does in a moment. Um, But he's coming, obviously, to ask the hard questions about this passage. He says, certainly, uh, he doesn't see how the story could be reconciled with the God of love that Christians say they believe in. So let's meet our guests for today's programme. Great to have you here, John. Good afternoon. It's good to be here. Thank you for coming in. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself, John. Uh, Did you sort of grow up in a Christian? environment i did yeah um my parents are christians my family were christians um but i wanted i really wanted to rebel against that but i found that i couldn't because i knew it was true you've written actually um a sort of a paper on this specific issue yes, that we're going to be discussing today what what kind of made you in the first place want to tackle this particular issue when i wrote it i'd just done a degree in theology and i was typically cocky i guess um and i read the 
satirical website Ship of Fools, mm. they'd recently done a survey on what people thought was the worst verse, the worst chapter in the entire Bible. And 1 Samuel 15, unsurprisingly, won it. It was voted by a long way the worst bit of the whole Bible. And I thought, okay, now I know God. I know that God is wonderful. I know that he's loving. And yet this chapter looks absolutely horrible. You know, especially to a modern Western audience, it, it brings back pictures of Srebrenica and horrible genocides mm, that mm, we've seen. Mm. Um, what on earth's going on there? And, you know, hey, I'm the vicar of St. Jude's now, patron saint of lost causes. <laughs> so you thought you'd, you'd uh, apply yourself to what is a, a really difficult question, as, as we said at the outset. Let's uh, find out what uh, Justin's background is. And this is going to get very confusing quickly, Justin, because we both share <laughs> the same first name. But... Um, at least I don't have two Justins arguing the point. Um, uh, just tell us a little bit about, about your background, Justin. Okay, yeah. Um, well, first of all, Justin, thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm a, I've always been a huge fan of the show, and I'm, I'm honored to be able to talk with you guys and contribute this morning. Um, now, I was uh, brought up in a, in a Christian household, a loving Christian household, and um, I... We used to be a Christian, and I there was a time in my life when I took that uh, extremely seriously. Um, I, my entire social structure was the church. Uh, after a while, though, some doubts started to creep in, and these were unintentional doubts. They was really um, they were difficult to explain, and uh, I, I tried to fight them, but I lost that battle, and that was a source of shame for a while. But now I'm I uh, I feel quite intellectually content with it. And, and um, you, you are very much engaged in, in the intellectual discourse on this, and um, uh, I'm always um, very interested in, in your posts that you put up on Facebook and elsewhere, your contributions to uh, the uh, the Reasonable Doubts podcast and so forth. Um, it would be great to have a show just talking to you about your journey in many ways, Justin, but but uh, just, just give us a quick response. Um, did you, at, at, when you were a Christian was these kind of passages in the Old Testament an, an issue for you? Did they play a part in your losing faith? Um, those passages for me were uh, just something I called a mystery, and I tried not to deal with them. <laughs> but no, those were not directly, uh, those didn't really serve as attention for me. Um, and now that I think about that, I, I, I'm concerned why. <laughs> but, um, but certainly something but, uh, you've, you've obviously looked into, since losing your faith and, and i guess um that very many atheists I, that i meet do um want to talk about these types of passages um very often mm -hmm. when we've done a a discussion say on the moral argument for god um very often the atheist will say well uh yeah on a practical level how can you possibly say the things you're saying about objective morality and, and look at what god commands in the old testament so it comes up in one form or another quite often sure. in, in my experience um well, look, we'll get your response to this in a moment, Justin, and, and thank you for being with me on the programme. And uh, I really appreciate your kind words about the, the show as well. And high time we had you on. I've been talking about getting you on for probably years now, but um, it's, it's good to finally get you on, and I'm sure we'll do it again some point. Um, OK, well, that's, that's our subject today. Does the slaughter of the Amalekites show that God is evil? We're going to hear the passage under discussion in a moment's time. But if you'd like to respond to anything you hear on the programme today, let me tell you here at the outset, you can email in 
unbelievable at premier.org.uk. And feel free as well to share your thoughts on this uh, once you've heard it via the Facebook and Twitter accounts for Unbelievable. That's at UnbelievableJB. If you tweet, it's facebook.com slash UnbelievableJB for the page of this program. Um, and don't forget all those links and much more besides available from the website of the of the show. That's premier.org.uk slash unbelievable. Doing today what probably amounts to the hardest bit of um, looking at a thorny passage from the Bible. Uh, does the slaughter of the Amalekites show that God is evil? <laughs> Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. I mean, you did pick a pretty hard target here, John, yes. when you decided to, to tackle this one, because um, I suppose it was your thinking, well, look, let's take the worst example. Absolutely, yes. Um, I mean, give, give us a little bit of a sense of, well, I don't know what we should do. Let's read the passage and then and then we'll just get your thoughts briefly on it um, in general terms and, and see what Justin has to say. OK, so we're going to First Samuel chapter 15, where you find this story. And I'm just going to read out the first part of the passage, which is the most relevant part. Um, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 soldiers of Judah. Saul came to the city of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, leave, withdraw from among the Amalekites, or I will destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites withdrew from the Amalekites. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. He took King Agag of the Amalekites alive, but utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the cattle and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was valuable and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Now, the story goes on. and Perhaps you'd like to summarise, John, kind of what happens thereafter, which links into the story. What happens thereafter is that um, Samuel comes and tells Saul off for being, what well, it looks like, being merciful and sparing some of the cattle and sparing King Agag. Um, God rejects Saul as king on the back of that, um, and Samuel then executes um, the king of the Amalekites. Okay, so... Um Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't look good at this point. Um, God, you know, this is where I guess people like Richard Dawkins get that sort of long-winded um, description of the God of the Old Testament from in the God Delusion when he goes mm. into a, a number of uh, adjectives to describe this God. Um, because it does look like something like genocide, something like God acting on a bit of a whim and saying, go and slaughter them. Um just first of all, give give us your general sort of um, response to, to how we should approach these kinds of passages. Okay, my general response: it looks it looks absolutely awful. I think we have to take the full force of that in a way. This this looks really really horrible. Um, and but it's important as well to 
to step back and to look at where this fits into the big story of the Bible. Now, the big story of the Bible at this point is that God has said he is going to bless the world. And he's going to bless the world through initially Abraham, then through Abraham's descendants, then through the the nation at the time of Israel. And they are meant to be a light to the world. They're meant to be God's means of bringing blessing to the world. And we look at the Amalekites, and the Amalekites are the archetypal enemy of Israel. Every time we see the Amalekites, they're attacking Israel. Um, during the previous 250-odd years, we know that they've attacked Israel at least five times. Um, they attacked Israel when Israel just came out of Egypt. They attacked Israel after they settled in the land. They, they just keep on attacking Israel. The Amalekites are... They are the nation more than any other who are opposed to God's plan to bless the world. So if God is going to carry out his plan to bless the world through the nation of Israel, actually he has to stop the Amalekites. Well, that's the big picture, and we'll get into some of the detail in a moment. I mean, there are different ways that people have attempted to uh, interpret or to look at these events. Um, And I'll get both yours and Justin's sort of response to that. I mean, one one way is uh, to say, well... There's, there's no historical evidence for this. Um, we're not, we can't say that this happened. So it's not a real concern. If it didn't happen, it, it doesn't really matter. How, how do you respond to, to that, John? Um, I think I'd respond to that by saying, I, I, I agree there's no archaeological evidence for this whatsoever. But there's no archaeological evidence for much in that period of history. I don't think we could name a single person who was alive at the time within 100 miles. There's very little archaeology done. Um, this is probably about 1040 BC um, in Israel, in the Sinai Desert. Um, so, yeah, at one level that's true, but actually it's still relevant to us because this is scripture. When Jesus read the Bible, he read this and he saw this as part of the story of his people, part of the story of the people which he represented. Mm. It, Even if it didn't historically happen, and I'm committed to the authority of scripture, I think it did happen, it's still important because Jesus read it as scripture. Right. Justin, um, let, let's just talk about this before we get into the substance of it. Um, any other kind of responses that you've come across um, that, that it's worth just pointing out at this point before we get into John's specific response? Okay, yeah. Um, well, okay, so uh, Paul Copen, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are familiar with, uh, he wrote, uh, Is God a Moral Monster? And on page 174, Paul actually argues that because there were survivors, clearly, after this initial uh, massacre that uh, Saul uh, did upon the Amalekites, uh, he argues that because there were survivors, that we shouldn't really take God's command to kill everything seriously, that we should take it as a kind of hyperbole. Um, But of course, this is very strange because either Paul is not reading, either Paul and apologists like him are not actually reading the content of the text because uh, Saul lost favor in God's eyes because there were survivors, right? So either they're not reading the text or they're not being entirely forthright with their uh, their interpretation of the text because the hyper, the hyperbolic interpretation of Specifically, at least, the Amalekite massacre. Um, I'm not sure about the Canaanite massacres and other things like that, of whether this hyperbolic approach would work, but specifically with the Amalekite, it would simply not work. It, it ignores what the text actually says. I mean, 
in your response, and I will make that available um, via the podcast to to this, John. You don't particularly take that line that um, speaking of this as as hyperbolic literature. Um, but what do you think of those who have kind of gone down that route? I think in general, it's there's a lot of truth in it. We see elsewhere, one Kings eleven, for example, we're told that Solomon takes an army and goes and camps and kills all the men and boys living in an area but someone survives. Mm. So we, we can see that the way that they use language, we'd say today, Man United annihilated West Ham. That doesn't mean that Manchester United just killed every person on the West Ham team, chopped them into little bits and so on. It, it just means they beat them in a game of football. Mm. So, I mean, the, the problem that some people have from a Christian perspective is, um, well, you know, is this the word of God or isn't it? Are we, you know, and are we allowed to kind of read a kind of a certain genre uh, as sort of therefore not maybe giving us the historical details we're used to having when it comes to this kind of literature i think this is history it's it's not history as we'd write it today it's history as the israelites wrote it in about 500 bc or whenever um justin any any response just as before we move on yeah i mean i i, I think there's a difference though between talking about uh between the narrative that's being given in the text about what they actually did and the narrative that's and the words being applied to God's mouth of what He's being commanding. Uh, if 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 John wants to say that, you know, um, sentences like "and they went and killed everybody," you know, if that's hyperbolic, I'm willing to say that that's that's fairly plausible. But when we talk about putting words into God's mouth, saying "you will destroy everyone," uh, and then calling that calling the description of, of what God is apparently saying, calling that hyperbolic, that just, I mean, that, that would just seem heretical to me. It depends how the hearers understand it, though. Surely what matters is what the hearer understands by God's command, rather than what we, reading the text 2,500 years later, understand by God's right, command. Right, but that's why Saul loses his job, is he doesn't take God literally. God means kill everything, Saul doesn't do it. Saul well, I think we'll probably come on to that issue of, of what exactly Paul, uh, Saul is condemned for, um, yeah. it, because I think that is important probably later on. But let, let's start at the very beginning, as uh, Maria in The Sound of Music says. Um, it's the very best place to start. It is, always. Um, let's talk about um, this kind of, uh, as we go... Okay, John, tell us who are the Amalekites. I'll ask you to be brief if you can, just just to kind of set the, this in context of who they are. You already mentioned that every time they're mentioned in Scripture, they're, they're, they're attacking Israel. And you've said, so yeah. this is kind of obviously a concern, um, in, if you like, for God's ultimate purpose, redemption purposes in Israel. Yes. So does this then give <clears throat> the background to why God would give a command like this? Yes, I think it does. I mean, it is a very sort of all-encompassing command on the face of it so um and one of the initial objections might be hang on these people um are not necessarily the same people as uh confronted israel when they came up out of egypt this is sometime later israel's been established and so forth but god's still telling them to kill them all yes i think we need to we need to look at it on two different levels we need to look at it as a corporate identity the national identity of the Amalekites is that they are the nation who attacks Israel. You know, if, you've, if you're part of a country and you've gone to war with another country five times in the last 250 years, that's going to be written big on your national consciousness that these are your enemies. And the current generation of Amalekites, I think, identify with that. Justin, let's hear from you. 
Yeah, um, well, okay, so it, it seems like what's being said is that all these all these separate attacks, uh, they all kind of culminate, and, and they kind of give a cumulative case for the destruction of the Amalekites. Um, my problem, though, is that God gives the reason for the destruction, and he, he gives this way back in Exodus in their very first attack on Israel uh, as they're coming out of Egypt. So all other subsequent attacks between that first uh, Egyptian attack, that post-exilic attack, um, or that post-Exodus attack, I mean, and uh, the uh, Saul attack, all those are irrelevant because the only reason God did this was because of that first initial Egyptian attack, and it was a foregone conclusion ever since then. I'd say that's not true. I'd say when when the Amalekites attack first time, God says the Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. And he in promises way, the, them the, that he'll blot them out. Yeah. Uh, that too. The the way the Amalekites act show that they continue to endorse what their ancestors did in attacking Israel. And we we get individual responsibility in the passage as well. For example, when when Agag is executed, Samuel says to him, as your sword, not, not your parents' sword, has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. It's it's individual responsibility of the Amalekites as well. Of, these, of this generation of Amalekites, as well as a kind of corporate responsibility of the nation. Well, right, but, but I think you're reading a bit too much into that passage. He's referring to that particular king. Um, but as uh, time and time again, I mean, I have five different passages here that talk about the reason God does this, and he's always referring back to that first uh, Egyptian battle. So I think that uh, assigning this to... Uh, to all the subsequent battles, I think, is just a misreading. So, of the so you're saying that, that it seems apparent that this is a punishment for something that their ancestors did. This isn't this isn't in response to current ongoing warfare. Yes, a, a very particular uh, punishment. It's for a very particular act. God uh, found that particularly uh, bothersome and <laughs> wanted to do something about it. I think the um, we have to read this as well in the context of wider scripture. In Jeremiah, for example, God says, when I declare disaster on a nation, if that nation repents and changes their ways, I'll forgive them. So, yes, God declares that they deserve judgment in Exodus 17. But actually, if they'd repented, if they'd turned around like Nineveh did under Jonah, God would have spared them. But their continuing attacks show that they continue to deserve God's judgment. I mean, we're probably not um, going to come to a, an agreement on this. I'll accept that you guys take different views on, on the, you know, w- what the motivation of God is in giving the command. Um, I mean, a, a, another good, another question I feel we should try and get to before we have to go to a break is, is what he's commanded, in mm-hmm. fact, um, is, you know, a lot of people talk about genocide. In fact, that the title of your paper is The Amalekite Genocide. John. It is. Genocide, as you've already said, raises all kinds of um, images in our mind. Um essentially hatred of a people group as a whole yes. and a desire to wipe them from the face of the earth. Now, is that what is represented here in this command from God as far as you're concerned? I don't think it is, no. There's a there's a desire to wipe out the corporate identity of the Amalekites. I don't think there's a desire to to kill every individual Amalekite. When, even, when even though it says, obviously this is why it's so hard, Yes, even though it says... Go and attack Amalek, utterly destroy all that they have, do not spare them, kill both man and woman, child and infant, 
oxen shoot. I mean, the the one that sticks in the throat most is it's the infant. child and infant and, and women as well, in the sense that you, yes. you would assume, okay, if we're talking about warfare, we're talking about men, soldiers going into battle, war, warfare rules apply. But he's talking about uh, child and infant. This just sounds so wrong. And that sounds like genocide, yes. doesn't it? I, it? You're right, it does. I think I think we need to read it in the context of how war is done at the time. Okay. How war is done at the time is you get a big army together. You, you see someone else has stuff that you want. So you send your big army. You kill some of them. Your, your army walks slowly so they can see you coming and get out of the way. But you kill some of them, the ones who stay to defend it, and you take their stuff. What we've got here is it's quite different. What we've got here is get a big army together, go there, they're still going at walking pace, it's still easy to escape from them, but fight them. Don't take any prisoners, don't take any plunder, don't profit from this destruction. It, he says cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Usually if an army went there, it would, t- it would capture people and use them as slaves, it would capture animals and use them to make you richer. And what God's saying here is don't profit from this attack. I don't want you making money off the backs of these. Are, are you people. saying, though, in that that in all likelihood, in pra- the practicalities of this are that there would have been opportunity for the women and the children to escape, to to flee. And it, so that essentially it is left to just men to defend the Amalekite uh city or whatever it might be absolutely we see that we see that in in deuteronomy 20 there's laws for how israel should go to the war and they're always meant to give the opportunity to surrender um we see they've got um there's these kenites who live in the same place as the amalekites but who saw let's get away nothing stopping the amalekites saying i I don't want to be an amalekite anymore i'll be a kenite they're not going to get killed i'll join in with them so it's kind of you see that as a little bit of a kind of this is your opportunity if you don't want to be involved in this warfare Say you're a Kenite and leave with them, basically. Say you're a Kenite, leave with them, run away when you hear the armies coming, um, surrender when you notice the Israelite army turning up. Lots of ways out of it. Only the people who stay to fight Israel die. All right, Justin, um, we're just about running out of time, actually. So rather than let you start a, uh, an answer to that and then have to cut you off, what I'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll let that hang. And Justin Sheba, our other guest, is going to respond to that in just a moment's time. We're looking at probably one of the thorniest questions in the whole of Scripture. Those Old Testament warfare passages, what do you do with them? How do you reconcile something like the passage we've been talking about today, the slaughter of the Amalekites, with the God of love that Christians say they believe in? We're asking today, does the slaughter of the Amalekites in First Samuel chapter 15 show that God is evil. We're hearing John Alistair just there give a defence saying um, we need to understand the context, um, what warfare was like, what the rules of warfare were. And perhaps we're not talking about a mass massacre of women and children and men in this context. In the end, um, we don't actually have a kind of rundown of who exactly did get killed in this battle. Um Justin Sheba, our atheist guest today, will be responding in a moment's time. This is the show that gets you thinking about the uh, the tough issues. Uh, so come back in a moment's time as we continue this discussion here on Unbelievable with me, Justin Briley. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. 
time of the week every Saturday when we aim to get you thinking and uh, certainly about one of the most difficult sort of passages of scripture probably in the whole of the Bible today. Uh, it's the slaughter of the Amalekites. Uh, very often this comes up when uh, non-Christians criticize the Bible. They say, what about all those passages in the Old Testament where apparently God commands and the Israelites go and slaughter people wholesale? Uh, what does that say about God? Um, well, very often people talk about the God of the Old and the New Testament as though there's a distinction between them. Well, John Alistair says, no, there's, we're not talking about two different gods here, but we are talking about a different time, place and culture. And we need to think carefully about what was actually going on in chapters like First Samuel chapter 15. Uh, John Alistair with me here in the studio, the vicar of St. Jude's Church, Nottingham, has written a defence of this, um, not defending killing per se, but defending how we might look at this in the context of general revelation of Jesus, of God's plans uh, for the people of Israel. Well, asking the difficult questions today is Justin Sheba, who's an atheist, a co-host of the popular podcast, uh, atheist podcast, Reasonable Doubts. Um, he's already been asking some of those questions. And so um, we just heard in that last section there, Justin, John essentially saying, well, y- take this in context with other bits of scripture, um, the Deuteronical commands about how warfare should be engaged in, the fact that in reality, people would have had a chance to escape if they were not wanting to confront to be part of the battle, uh, women and children and so forth could have escaped, including any men who wanted to. Um, so we're not, in the end, probably talking about the the, the, the mass slaughter of all, all occupants that we often assume with this kind of a passage. Uh, what, what's your response to that, first of all? Right. Uh, I, I want to make a point of... Um, I mean, I, I totally agree that we need to be taking into the context uh, the whole surrounding narrative here. And that's where I think that, that these objections, uh, that's where I think that these answers to these issues uh, come into huge problems. For example, um, Jonathan, in his, in his article, writes about uh, the, the Kenites and says how, uh, you know, the Kenites and the, the Amalekites uh, seem to be buddy-buddy, and so when Saul does approach their camp to, before he does, before he initiates his slaughter, he gives them the opportunity to uh, separate themselves from the Amalekites, and so John um, seems to suggest, uh, without any warrant, I think that that the Amalekites had the opportunity to join them secretly. Right. The problem here is, is that even if this wasn't a complete uh, unwarranted assumption that the uh, that the uh, Kenites would allow the Amalekites to join them, uh, we read actually in two chapters later that the Kenites are slaughtered wholesale as well. So that will not work. David, uh, once he takes the throne, he slaughters the, the, um, them well, actually while he's in the Philistine territory. Um, we read that in 27.10, 1 Samuel. Uh, secondly, the Deuteronomy passage, I think, doesn't apply. So when we read the Deuteronomy passage, uh, we can start at uh, chapter 20, verses 10. It says, when you approach a city to fight... Uh, when you, I'm sorry, when you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace... Uh, and then it goes on to say, if it opens to you, then you shall just have them all serve in, in, in forced labor. But if it does not open to you and it goes to war against you, you shall besiege it, and you shall strike all the men, but only the women and children and animals in that city you take for yourself. So this is not at all applicable to Deuteronomy 20, because God is explicitly saying you destroy all of them. And he punishes Saul when he doesn't do it. So uh, Deuteronomy 20 doesn't work. It's... um. 
Uh, so this is not the kind of command that were given in the Amalekites. Okay. Yeah, John. Um, you raised a couple of things there. 1 Samuel 27, verse 10. Um, David says he's attacked the Kenites. Actually, if you read that passage in the context of the chapter, um, David's lying. He's been, ra- he's been raiding the Amalekites and the Girizites, and he lies to the Philistines to make it look like he's... Again, he's turned against Israel, so he lies, saying that he's attacked the Kenites. He doesn't actually attack or destroy them in 1 Samuel 27. Um, I think as well in Deuteronomy 20, what you've got is the war rules for warfare, and you're right, it says that you can take plunder when you attack the city. So what we get in 1 Samuel is we get the explicit command, don't take plunder. The rest of it still applies. He's just saying that one command about taking plunder, women and children and camels and whatever, you're not allowed to do that. But you assume the rest of the law still applies. Well, no, this is a this is a very different kind of law. Um, so, there, as I said, you know, there's there's different circumstances, and whether it's whether they're attacking within promised land territory, and then starting at 16, you have uh, the foreign territories. This is different because you have harem being opposed on foreign territories, um, and God gives the particulars of it, which is to slaughter everybody. And the first Samuel twenty-seven passage, I don't see how you could see that that's a, that that the, that that is a lie. What he's saying is, uh, when people ask him what he's been doing, he's saying he goes and slaughters these people, and then it's not a lie because it's clearly not a lie. He gives a reason for why he slaughtered all these people so that they wouldn't tell anybody. Let, let, he doesn't want his reputation disturbed. Let's go to one Samuel twenty-seven for a moment. I mean, it's just a slight diversion, but I think it's important. Um, 1 okay. Samuel 27, verse 8, David and his men went up and raided the Gerashites, the Girizites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived somewhere. Whenever David attacked them, he didn't leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he That's returned- a narrative. That's not a lie. Uh, no, you're right. This is, this is the narrative. He's working as a mercenary for the Philistines at this point. When Achish, who's employing him, asked, where did you go raiding, raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of Jehoamiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. That's not where he's just gone and attacked. He's lying to the Philistines to deceive them, to make it look like he's attacking his own people, when actually he's been attacking his enemies. There's, slight, there's slight no indication that he's lying there. I don't see where you're, well, it, where what you're getting What John's saying is that he's directly contradicting where it, the, the narrative has just said he's gone to do his raid. He's then telling them he's been raiding a different place. That's that's the point. It, it's not saying then David lied, but it's obviously very obvious when you read it that he is lying to, and f- for this purpose presumably of fooling the Philistines into thinking he's working for them when he's not really. Yes. Um, does, does hmm. that... I'll have to look into that one. I've... Okay. Well, look, let's leave that. It is a bit of a diversion. It's, it's, it is. I mean, the bigger issue for me is this one, and, and let me just try and spell this out a bit here, John. Justin's problem with you saying, no, they would still have been bound by the Deuteronical laws on um, warfare and the treat uh, and what happens there is that he's saying, well, look, it, it appears that God's saying, no, forget that law now. I'm giving you a special instruction at this point: kill everyone, mm-hmm. okay, and don't take any cattle and so forth. Just wipe it all out. Um, but you're saying, no, the command was not to profit from the spoils. Yes, but that does not therefore equal God saying. And ignore my law, the, the, the laws that, of warfare that apply, which is to let people go if they Absolutely, escape yeah. and don't put up a fight. That's not somehow present in this passage. You, you, there's no need to assume that that law has somehow been overrun. No, there isn't. And in any case, they have plenty of other ways out. They can just run away bravely. So, so that's the point, I suppose, Justin, is that 
No, it's not. It's not directly, obviously, spelled out here. But we've no reason to assume they would not follow the normal code in in allowing people the chance to go if they're not going to. Well, I just don't see. I just don't see why we're not taking God's words seriously when we're when we're attri- when the narrative is attributing words to God, and they're very explicit. He he talks about. He even goes so specific as to distinguish children from infants. This this isn't a kind of exaggeration. He's getting very particular and he's getting detailed, um, and he's saying to destroy them all. And the fact that he holds on to some of the livestock is one of the reasons why Saul was punished. The fact that he holds on to Agag is one of the reasons why Saul was punished. I simply don't see how we can really square this with and, and think that it's okay that he probably let some children go. No, they were after them. They were trying to destroy them. Otherwise, uh, you're putting words into God's mouth. You're changing the, the, the biblical text. You're saying that uh, whatever God said in that text, those words aren't really God's. Um, if you do that, then, then by what criterion do you deny doing that in every other part of the text? I, I, I don't think I'm doing that. I think what I'm saying is we need to understand God's command to Saul the same as Saul would have understood it. Now, Saul had this book of rules on how he should go to war. And the book of rules says if you're attacking somewhere outside Israel, which the Amalekites are, you're allowed to plunder and you're meant to let people go. And God says, go and attack these people outside Israel and don't plunder. Don't, yeah, he says, put to death men and women, children, infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. As you say, the intention from that is you're not meant to profit by this attack. So why does, um, why does Samuel then condemn Saul in verse 19? He says, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder? It's, Saul attack, Samuel attacks Saul because Saul has been profiting from it. He's been taking the best bits of what the Amalekites had and using them for his own good. <laughs> no, I, I, I honestly can't believe that we're allowed to uh, be so loose with the text when, we're, when we read parts that we're uncomfortable with. Um, I mean, it's so clearly uh, God is saying destroy everything. I mean, you want to insist that that's not the case, but but take your own Bible seriously for once. It says that. Why can you get them from that, that, oh, they're not profiting? That's not what the point is. God is being articulate. He's being particular in the kinds of things he wants destroyed. And if you're not going to listen to that, then I don't know why you're debating this issue. I think I'm, I think I'm taking it seriously. He's saying, destroy all that belongs to them. Yes, he says that. An army is big and moves at the speed of probably the wagons carrying the arms or the food or something. Now, if someone wants to get up and run away from that, a a couple of people running away from that with a horse can get away from an army like that. The question for me is, is at this point, okay, Justin says we need to take this seriously, that what God's talking about here is telling them to go and destroy everything. He's bypassing any rules that may have been laid down elsewhere. You're saying, no, those rules aren't bypassed. We can just as reasonably expect that all the those who didn't want to be caught up in the warfare could have escaped in good time and so forth. I mean, it's... But uh, can we be serious, John, in suggesting that when God commands everyone to be slaughtered even if there's kind of a little caveat to that which we're not seeing directly which is anyone who's there okay being slaughtered um that 
no women and children ever did get slaughtered in the con in in these contexts. I mean, it would be kind of a stretch to assume that, wouldn't it? I mean, and in even yeah. that, even if you just granted, well, let's say one innocent child got killed in this yeah. at the command of God. Isn't that alone enough to, to kind of raise big question marks and say, what kind of a God is this who's commanding innocence be slaughtered? Because we, we always assume children yeah. are, are innocents in anything like this. And this is where the, the real meat of this problem comes, isn't it? You're right. And I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to rule out that some women and children do die as a result of this command. I think I'd want to ask though, if, if a parent takes their child to war, and the child dies, whose fault is that? Is that the fault of the army that attacks, or is that the fault of the parent who doesn't get their kid out of the way? I'd say it's the fault of the God who commanded the, the people to shove broadswords into the bellies of children and infants. Why, if they did remain, yes. even if you were to say that that was their own fault, Justin takes issue with that, why would it be moral for them to be killed? in that because to us even in that context of when we think of warfare a soldier who found a, a child cowering in a building and immediately killed it with defenseless say now i'm not saying that is the context here no. but um but for us that strikes us as incredibly wrong and i think that's where the force of this problem is 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 what about the children what about the women who were caught up we can hardly say that a child is culpable for deciding to be there and, and whatever. We've got to face up, haven't we, yeah. to just how horrible it's, this is. It, it's hard, and it, it's hard, and it's difficult, and and yes, it, it, it's nasty. And yeah, I'd say if children got caught up, it's it's ultimately their parents' fault because they should have got them out of there. And it's it's tragic and it's horrible. Yes, um, Justin. <sighs> You, you say it's it, it, even allowing that. Um, it's ultimately God's the one commanding this. Um, I mean, presumably John's defence to that is, well, yes, God has a bigger purpose um, for commanding uh, people to go to war in the Old Testament. The, the point is, these people, had they been allowed to flourish, would have... Um, you know, been an impediment to God's overall purpose of redemption and, and the big plan through Jesus. So what, what's your response to that bigger issue of um, th that there was an ultimate good that even, you know, what we see as pretty horrific stuff was accomplishing? Yeah, I think the problem here is it's just utterly implausible and it, it ignores what we know about children. I mean, children are at the age where they're the most, uh, they're the most malleable. Um, so when you, if you come across, okay, if you have to kill everybody, you know, if, if that's really what you need to do and the, there's a bunch of children left, the, the goal isn't to shove a broadsword into them. The goal is to take them and love them and raise them in a loving home and, and change their variable, their very malleable minds to embrace your set of values. Um, that's what you do. You don't slaughter them. Um, and, and if, and if it was the case that it was just absolutely guaranteed that those children are going to grow up to do um, to be like the Amalekites. Then you have the problem of they don't have free will because then they don't have the choice anymore. If it's 100% certain, then they could not have chosen otherwise. The problem with that, of course, is that they have no morally significant free will. I think, um, I think we can see... I, I'm not... 
I'm not disagreeing with you. I think we disagree about whether children were actually killed and, and how many were. I think it's interesting. You, you pointed us to 1 Samuel 27 um, a few minutes ago. It's really interesting. I just noticed this when you pointed it out. In verse 8 of 1 Samuel 27, David goes and raids the Amalekites. Now Saul's just exterminated them, hasn't he? You know, 12 chapters earlier, Saul exterminates the Amalekites. There's no doubt that Saul kills everyone living there. Um, that's not contested, apart from some people he takes as plunder, who Samuel then kills. And um, yet, in, verse, in chapter 27, the Amalekites are still there. Actually, what's happened is a lot of them have run away, and then when the army leaves, they've come back. I mean, this is, this is no, to back, I... back up your point that, that the, the, this is evidence that people... Yes, yeah. ran away from the fighting and and then regrouped and, and absolutely so yeah. and, and even within the passage you've got the example of agag's mother, mother yes. is mentioned as a still living person so obviously not all yeah. the amalekites were killed even on the evidence of the passage no. itself well i don't think i don't think anybody's claiming that all the amalekites were killed i mean the amalekites i mean even paul copen accepts that the amalekites were nomads so they had several settlements uh in different regions of the uh the Near East there. Um, so even if they had gone over a, a handful of, um, you know, it, it talks about how the from what city to what city they destroyed, that wasn't necessarily all of the Amalekites. Um, they destroyed all of those Amalekites in that particular region. So, it, so I don't think that's at all a problem. Um, now, when, when it, I mean, when it comes to children, if, 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 it's, if the narrative says that they killed some children that they killed, it says they killed all the people. Um, I mean, you have to accept that at least one got a broadsword into its belly, and you have to say that's okay. And you're defending that right now. I'm telling you that that's sick. I think I'd have to say that it's, it's quite possible some of the Amalekites lost their children. I, I think it's important to say as well that God knows because God lost a child as well because of his judgment against sin, and God takes sin that seriously. Right, because he sent him down there and he preordained his child to be tortured. There's another fatherly moment. Well, look, um, we, we probably don't have time to, to go into the, the nature of the atonement, but the point I'm getting from you, John, is that there will be, in some sense... It's a not a nice phrase, but no. collateral damage or something like that in the course of uh, bigger things being worked out, and that um, it's not in any way pleasant, but that um, yeah. things happen. Innocence is, you know, goes awry, and there um, and, and so forth. When uh, evil is confronted, innocence gets drawn in, um, and so forth. I mean, this side of eternity, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, now. This this is kind of became an issue uh, over a year ago when Richard Dawkins wrote an, a sort of article against William Lane Craig accusing him of being an apologist for genocide uh, when he responded to why he wouldn't debate him um, during his UK tour. Now, um, Dawkins particularly took issue with the idea that Bill said, well, any children who did get caught up as innocents um, would obviously uh, have in eternal life. They wouldn't, uh, you know, receive... Uh, hell or anything like that so in some way um you have to look at it in the context of the bigger picture of this uh justin do you have anything to say to that kind of view which i think is where john was sort of heading a little bit there in, in terms of yeah <clears throat> yeah well i think that john and bill craig are are making a giant mistake 
of confusing um, compensation with justification. Uh, I can, uh, for instance, I can go and, um, I don't know, do some terrible things to, uh, you know, your families or something. And then I can come back to you later and pay you a legal sum that uh, is required of me, that I could compensate you in that way. But my compensation, of course, never justifies my doing that in the first place. And so in the same way, God's sending these babies to hell in no way justifies. Or, I'm sorry, yes, yes. Um, well, I guess it depends, you know. Um, but uh, it in no way justifies his thrusting a broadsword into them. I mean, that no one can really make that logical leap. And for some reason, Craig and Craig Craig feels that he uh, can manage that. Um, I'm at a loss for words. I think I think you're right that the future, the future recompense, which which would far outweigh whatever was done to them in in the present in this life, um, doesn't justify it. But I think other things could justify that action. For example, if I'm if, if I'm on a train and the train's delayed, the fact they might give me my money back for the ticket doesn't justify. The train being delayed, but wider causes like, like an accident on the line ahead of me could justify it. The re- the recompense is, is paid because it's recognised that actually in this life, in this life you can't always make everything absolutely fair. Let's move on from the issue of of um, the, the issue of the children who may or may not have been caught up in this. Um, I understand that uh, you know from from a Christian perspective, it would be nice to assume the best. Uh, that who knows perhaps children never did get caught up in this uh and and we are talking about um uh, sort of hypotheticals in that sense but um moving beyond that what um is is there a justification overall for the use of warfare i'd say uh, you know some people would say if you look at what jesus taught he seemed to be against the use of the sword full stop you know it does seem to be a contradiction the way God acts in the Old Testament in general yeah. with Jesus' teachings on the way God is and, and who he is. And I think this, when you're moving away from specific instances and yes. looking at the general tenor of the Old Testament, this often is the issue that comes up. Um, uh, you know, if Jesus says, um, you know, uh, I, I tell you, it shouldn't be an eye for an eye, a cheek for a cheek, but uh, love your enemy, bless those who curse you, yeah. go the extra mile. This just seems so anomalous to the actions of God in getting his purposes in the Old Testament. So so what's going on? Do we have this Old Testament, New Testament God dichotomy that people often bring up, John? I don't think God's different. I think the situation is very different. We see in the Old Testament a bit, we see Rahab, for example, was from a nation, from a city, the city of Jericho, that was doomed to destruction and she turned to god and god welcomed her into into the people of israel and there's not a problem there ruth is from a people who are doomed to destruction and she turned and became an israelite and um was welcomed in i think the situation changes um because of a couple of things um firstly in the old testament god's plan is to bless the world through the people of israel now ultimately that's fulfilled when jesus comes along there isn't a nation now that god needs to protect in order to fulfill his purpose for blessing the world because jesus has already come i think now god's people are not a political entity 
in the Old Testament, they, they are. The nation of Israel is God's people. Now, God's people is the church. We're not a political entity. We don't hold, we don't hold political power. Um, so, so that sort of behavior, the behavior of the church as a nation state is completely inappropriate now. Do, do you think there is a problem here of, of, um, the way that Jesus seems to act in and say things that are quite uh, different to the way God appears to act in the Old Testament, Justin? Uh, no, I, I do not think that uh, I came to bring in peace, but I came to bring a sword. I mean, this this kind of thing and the threats of hellfire, I don't think, I mean, it's just a, it's different in kind. Um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to moral law, I think that does become an issue. I think uh, you have a kind of covenantal moral relativism between the Old and New Testaments. Um, and I don't think that that can really be avoided. Um, I think that Christians have to embrace a kind of covenantal moral relativism, or at least a moral relativism on a cosmic scale, to where um, the it's a kind of do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do kind of approach to ethics. I think there's... Right, in the New Testament, it's very strong. Why should we not punish or take revenge? We shouldn't, because actually that's God's job. Because we don't know people's hearts, and God says, Le- leave room for God's wrath, because I will avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And and God knows people's hearts, and God knows all the information, and actually God will, God will get it right in the end, so it's not our place now to judge. So when we see people in the New Testament, judged like the Amalekites were in the Old Testament. Who, who do we see like that? We see Ananias and Sapphira in Acts. We see Herod in Acts, um, judged like that by God. Actually, it's done without human intervention. Right. Well, I mean, the problem with this kind of agnosticism towards um, people's hearts, right, and, and our ability to judge them, I mean, I mean, are it seems like if you want to be consistent, you'd have to say, well, we can't really put people in jail anymore. We can't really punish people. We can't really uh, um, fine people anymore because you don't know their hearts. There could be some other greater reason that they have. Maybe maybe I'm morally justified for some reason that everyone's un- unaware of for speeding down the highway and accidentally you know, uh, smashing into someone or something. I mean, this kind of moral skepticism is, is extremely damaging, I think. I don't think you can take it consistently seriously i think you can take it seriously and say it's not the church's job um but it is the job of society it's the job of the government to enforce some laws and to punish but we we are just drawing uh close to the end of this section and and we'll just have a chance to start to wrap things up in the next section um uh, we're listening to what what is it actually quite painful stuff to listen to in many ways and um i do hope that if uh you want to get in touch well i'll i'll give the the usual ways of doing that um perhaps you you've got some thoughts on this and um, perhaps you take a different view to john here in the studio as a christian of how you would interpret these old testament passages perhaps you uh, are an atheist or um of another faith and, and would like a, a say on this do get in touch uh, unbelievable at premier.org.uk so you're listening to uh, a discussion on some of those issues around Old Testament warfare, specifically the issue of the slaughter of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And we're going to be back with final thoughts from both my guests, Justin Sheba and John Allister, in just a moment's time. 
Welcome back to the third and final part of Unbelievable this Saturday afternoon with me, Justin Briley, and we'll be hearing the final thoughts from my guests, Justin Sheba and John Allister, on the issue of the Amalekites in a moment's time. If you're a regular listener of this show, you'll know that I normally tell you what's coming up next week at this point in the programme. Well, I'd like to, but I can't at this stage, and that will be explained next week. We are having a show, and the topic will be homosexuality. But I'm not going to give you details of the guests and the exact nature of the program for next week. But I do encourage you to tune in either at uh, 2.30 on Saturday afternoon here uh, on Premier Christian Radio or to find it via the podcast at premier.org.uk slash unbelievable. And I think you'll be very interested to hear next week's program. Uh, just a reminder that if you want to get in touch, you can email unbelievable at premier.org.uk and we'll be hearing some of your feedback to the last few weeks of programming towards the end of today's show. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Well, just as we wrap things up now, um, we've been talking about this very thorny issue, probably the hardest passage in perhaps the whole of scripture to reconcile with the idea of a god of love when god apparently commanded through samuel the slaughter of men women and children in the amalekite tribe uh how how do we reconcile that with the god of love we've been hearing john allister who has written a paper on this and i will post the link with the podcast if you want to read that i think you you mentioned your thinking's gone a little bit further since you wrote that a few years ago it has gone um so Bear that in mind as you read, but um, that's a, a starting place probably. And of course, I'll, I'll post um, links to where you can find Justin and um, uh, and some of the stuff that they've written on this as well. Um, uh, gents, uh, so so we've we've kind of ended up with talking about well, do, do does Jesus bring a, a different, totally different kind of moral framework to this? You talked about the fact, John, that. We're not dealing with a political sort no. of religion anymore. No, um, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world and so forth. And he essentially repudiates, you know, the striking off of the servants here yeah. and, and that sort of thing. And he says that's not the way it's done now. Um, I mean, one of the things that some atheists have said to me about these Old Testament passages as well, it just goes to show how delusional religion is because now anyone who thinks they've heard from God can go and murder someone and feel they're perfectly justified in it because if God says it, you can go and do it. If you leave these Old Testament passages, all they need is the command from God and then anything's up for grabs, basically. How do you respond to that? I think I'd, I think I'd respond to that by saying we need to be very humble when we claim that we've heard from God. Yeah, um, if I, if I think I've heard God telling me to do something, I will, I will check it out with other people. I will, I will ask. And, you know, we, we know that God is consistent and we know that after Jesus, God isn't going to command us to go and do these things. Um, if we read our Bibles, but at the same time, I'd, yeah, if God told me to move to India, I'd want to check that out. I'd want to listen to other people and get wisdom from them because, because we've got to be humble and, you know, got to be aware that we can we can con ourselves um do, do you think this is a license these passages for for loonies to go and do things in the name of religion justin well i think it i think it opens up a dangerous potential i mean 
all Christians have to ask themselves. You know, would they gut their child if they were convinced that God told them to? Maybe God has morally sufficient reasons for having them do that. I mean, if, if that's allowed, then the next question is, uh, would you rape someone if you thought God was telling you and had morally sufficient reasons that you don't understand? Um, I mean, where's where's the line drawn? There, there really is nothing that can't be justified with this kind of... Uh, I suppose John's this, point, though, is that in light of what Jesus says, then mm-hmm. and if you're a, a Christian by any sort of reasonable stretch of the imagination, yeah. you'll, you'll be conducting your life according to the words of Jesus, which obviously will mean that you're hearing very wrongly if... Yes. if, if you think God's telling you to rape someone. We're, we're told to test everything in the Bible. We're told to test everything that we think God might be saying, or we think right. a spirit might be saying against what the Bible says. And okay, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if the rules have changed, then, you know, we're, we're just embracing uh, covenantal moral relativism at the end of the day. What does that mean? What? Just just spell it out briefly for us, Justin. What well, I mean, if it doesn't seem... If, 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 uh, if the perception of a command to do... X is is uh, you know something that's worth pursuing in the Old Testament, but not but not in the not in the current covenant. Then it, it's I mean, you know where where is where is the line here? Where is the absolutes right? So if if Jesus suddenly list has a new kind of moral framework in the new covenant, it's it's kind of it's all relative. It's sort of there there is no absolute morality that that we can appeal to. Um, I think the difference is well. It's culturally relative, I suppose, would be the word. I don't think the difference is because of because anything's changed in the nature of God or anything. It's because we're in a different situation now. Exactly. It's it's cultural moral relativism. Uh, It depends upon what covenant you're under, depending on what you're allowed to do. Um, I mean, that's that. You can embrace that if you want. That's 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 fine. I I think there's there's an underlying moral absolutism. Um, the the relative side of things comes in if you've got in the specific situation that you've got the people of God are a nation state who is being threatened by another nation state they are allowed to kill in self defence essentially right um, okay so well, all I'm saying is that um, you know God can get away with any kind of morally sufficient reasons whether or not we understand them right you I, would I, I think that. I think you'd do the same I think you'd say that someone is allowed to kill an intruder if they're threatening the life of their family, or possibly a state-sponsored executioner. Um, oh, oh is a different sure, sure. Yeah. Sure, but, but those are reasons that are, would be available to me. You have to... Um, you're, you're simply about obedience. You don't have to worry about reasons anymore. I don't you're, th- you're tied to obedience. This isn't morality. This is obedience. I don't think that's true. I think we, I think we do our best to understand what God's saying. We do our best to understand the context of God's word, and we understand what we think we're hearing in the light of that. Right, but you can never be sure. I think I can. <laughs> we, we are going to have to wrap things up, gents. Um, Justin, can I say thank you for um, uh, coming on and, uh, deliver, you know, really... Uh, working john hard here um on this passage and i think uh, it is the kind of passage that needs to to be gone over hard and we've obviously only been able to scratch the surface of many issues we've had to move on from things um that we could have gone into in more depth but thank you very much for um being with us for those who are just uh, listening live um do you want to just tell us what how to get hold of your podcast and things like that yeah uh justin uh, thanks again for having me on i i, I had a good time um uh, our website is doubtcast.org, and uh, you can also reach us on Twitter at, uh, at doubtcast. Okay. 
and um, we'll obviously post up this podcast and if you want to find that and the link to justin uh, premier.org.uk slash unbelievable is there any uh, way if people find out more about yourself john um google me i've got a blog um which i'll give you the link for um yeah and uh, I'll post alongside that the, the paper uh, that uh, is available online that we were sort of working from um, as we approach this topic today on the Amalekite slaughter. Um, so uh, very um, tough stuff today. And um, if you've got more questions or, or you want to reflect on this, uh, perhaps you've got a different perspective on this, I do encourage you to get in touch. This isn't the last word on it by any means from either yeah. the atheist or Christian perspective. Uh, it's the ongoing discussion. Uh, grappling with the tough bits of the Bible is is part of what we do here on the programme, and, and we've certainly tried to do that today. And thanks for the, the gracious manner you've both uh, tried to come at this in. Uh, thank you do. very much, and thank you to the other Justin for fun discussion. Thank you, John. Thank you both. Well, uh, what did you think of that? Do get in touch. Um, unbelievable at premier.org.uk is the email address. You're listening to... Last week, I invited uh, John Allister to join me, uh, an Anglican vicar here in the UK, who had written a paper uh, de- sort of defending the um, slaughter of the Amalekites in the Old Testament, specifically in Samuel 15 Um, and he gave his reasoning why we don't have to assume that God is evil for commanding such a thing and for the way when we look at the context of what was happening and the actual details as recorded in the story. Um, Justin Sheba was our atheist guest who joined us to uh, as it were ask the hard questions. Now um, the response um, has been very interesting because both Christians and atheists uh, in seemingly large numbers have been unpersuaded by John's defence and uh, a number have suggested that there are other ways of looking at this particularly thorny issue in scripture um, and obviously at the outset of the program i i think we, we we did mention at least briefly that there are different ways of approaching this question but obviously john's perspective was the one we were going to be focusing in on uh, one person who uh, took the time to write quite a lengthy blog post on this is uh, randall rouser who's a i hope i'm pronouncing your name correctly randall but uh, he's an apologist he's a theologian um runs the blog um randallrouser.com and uh, he published a blog saying an unbelievable defense of the Amalekite genocide saying the other day I listened to the latest podcast from Justin Briley's radio program unbelievable I've always loved the show as it seeks to forge precisely in-depth conversation across the divide of deeply polarized positions and that's just what our world needs today however this particular program soon had me pulling out my hair the topic was the Amalekite genocide described in first Samuel 15 here's the text and goes on to put out the text of that particular story uh, you say, um, my frustrations began early on when Alistair declared, I'm committed to the authority of scripture. I think it did happen. And uh, you go on to say here, Randall, I might expect that kind of biblicism from an untutored Baptist layperson, but certainly not an Anglican vicar. Surely Alistair recognises that matters of inspiration, authority and even inerrancy are separate from issues of interpretation. One would assume so, but statements like this suggest otherwise. Um, I'm just paraphrasing and reading very short segments of 
the blog you've written here, Randall. Um, you go on to say, Alistair says he accepts the narrative, but then suggests that the Amalekites had time to run away as the Israelite army slowly marched towards them. He suggests that Amalekites could also have freely assimilated into the Kenite tribe to avoid annihilation. He suggests that maybe no children and infants were ever killed. He proposes that the Amalekites were being killed as much for their ongoing rebellion as the sins of their ancestors. He suggests that only those who stayed to fight the Israelites would have been killed. He suggests the Alama Amalekites would have been given the opportunity to surrender. All of this is nothing more than an incredibly audacious, intellectually dishonest attempt to recast harem sacrifice warfare as a contemporary just war, and nothing could be further from the truth. Again, skipping forward, uh, Randall says, you might be wondering how Alistair can make his claims. His strategy is to appeal to Deuteronomy 20, which stipulates non-genocidal conditions for warfare outside the territory of Israel. That includes relatively benevolent benevolent actions like enslaving rather than slaughtering the surrendering population. What he completely ignores is that those stipulations are not absolutes. Instead, they are standard practices which are explicitly overridden in the case of the Amalekites when Yahweh directly commands complete annihilation. And so uh, a number of other criticisms are given by Randall of the way John defended this. Um, so Randall himself as a Christian would have taken a very, very different approach, he says, um, and concludes by saying, I think Unbelievable is a great program. But in this case, we were given two options, atheism or a collocation of intellectual dishonesty and unthinkable moral principles. There are other options. There are other views that adhere to the inspiration of scripture while remaining intellectually honest and keeping our deepest moral intuitions intact. That's why I wrote the chapter on genocide in The Swedish Atheist, The Scuba Diver and Other Apologetic Rabbit Trails, which is his latest book. Uh, it's high time that this growing chorus of reasonable Christian voices is given a wider audience. Well, let me say at the outset, uh, this was by no means the... <laughs> The final uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, voice on this on this program. Um, John obviously has his view, uh, defended it um, as well as he could in the context. But uh, there are other views out there and I'm sure we'll hear them in the course of time on the program. Uh, Andrew uh, from South East London uh, also wanted to say, uh, and again, I'm just reading a, a small portion of your email, Andrew. I found John Alistair's defence to be so weak that it caused me to think that the phrase spin doctor was the most appropriate word to describe his whole approach. I think the real issue with your guest is that he was defending the conservative view of the inerrancy, authority and unity of scripture at the expense of what's actually going on in the text. In my view, the doctrine of inerrancy actually stunts one's growth. I'm afraid this is just the kind of apologetic defence that will not wash with serious critical Bible readers. It is ultimately, in my view, an embarrassment to intellectual honesty. Uh, it's also a number of atheists who have been in touch as well um, in regard to this. Um, Ian in San Francisco says, While I always enjoy your podcast, this last week's episode left me feeling a bit ill. I was in shock as your guest John made the argument that God didn't commit genocide because the victims could have run away and that if any innocent children or infants were killed, as God had ordered them to be, it was due to bad parenting. I can't believe for one second that John would make the same statements about a man-ordered genocide. And this line of reasoning seems intellectually dishonest and deplorable. Perhaps you should rename the episode The Failure of Christian Morality. Uh, David says, thanks for the show. 
Justin was a good choice, speaking there of Justin Sheba, and really held the Christian guests' feet to the fire. It was clear the Christian put words into God's mouth when he read the text. Uh, when God says kill women, children and infants, he knew they wouldn't be there to be killed having already escaped. He went on to try and blame the parents of any child or infant who might have did it if some didn't flee beforehand. I agree the parents are slightly culpable. However, the brunt of the blame lies with the soldiers and the one who gave the specific order, kill the children and infants. Um, says David, he doesn't think the... Uh, the the arguments from John washed either um, Nick uh, says my prayers going out to you and London today this uh, is referring to the helicopter crash that occurred uh, so obviously um, I think you're out in the States Nick and uh, heard about that uh, cr- uh, terrible crash of a helicopter not far from our studios here in London um, in fact um, right outside the train station that I normally um, I'm coming through when I come into the work. Uh, you say, saddened to hear the news. Keep, I will keep those in the UK in my prayers. Um, thank you very much for your thoughts on that, Nick. But on the issue of last week's show, um, you say, I just got finished listening to your debate. Have to say, I was disappointed by John's defence of the Christian view on the topic. Uh, throughout the debate, while I disagreed with Justin's conclusions, I have to say his interpretation of scripture, at the very least, seemed much more responsible and valid than John's. And I agreed with a lot of the challenges he brought to the table. By far my di- biggest disappointment, however, was that the debate seemed to stay in a superficial one of did this actually happen or was it really to be taken literally? And the two missed an opportunity to discuss what the event would say about the very character of God. Nothing was said about the fact that the Bible talks more about God's holiness than it does about his love. To me, this was a wasted opportunity on John's part, while he instead tried to play the role of God's PR man. Disappointing arguments from both sides of the debate says nick uh richard says awesome show love it here in the us i listen via podcast i've always struggled with this issue in the past and wanted to list a few of my own reasons that i've used uh as regards first samuel 15 it's a bit unfair looking back 3000 plus years and judging god's decision based upon the standards of the 21st century take for example uh, 12 of the first 18 presidents of the united states were slave owners Uh, People like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson. Today, it's unthinkable uh, based on 21st century standards. And slavery is wrong. Please don't think I'm advocating it. Uh, But in the case of 1 Samuel 15, you really have to find out what life was like in that time period. And then we can make the decision uh, about whether God is evil by ordering Saul to kill everyone. Um, uh, And so you go on to talk about other parts of the Bible that it's usual to read this in the context of um, essentially making the point that it was a sort of kill or be killed time. Um, uh, thank you very much, Richard. Um, and uh, here's uh, let's go to Christine in Shropshire says today's show just wanted to make the point. If it's appropriate to bear in mind cultural and historical context when interpreting the Old Testament events, such as the massacres you've been talking about, and I would argue it's always important to think about scripture, then should we not bear in mind current context and culture when considering modern Christian doctrine? I'm generally a believer, a sceptic in the true sense of the word, i.e. open-minded and always thinking and considering information. But this has really made me think about my views on, for example, women priests, which until now I had been uncomfortable with. Okay, it's an interesting uh, sort of... uh, linked in thing that it's obviously got you thinking about thank you very much christine i think i think first time i've heard from you christine i could be wrong there but thanks for emailing mark baster says uh, firstly and ironically we are deeply offended by this only because we are a christianized society 
The old covenant is under the strict regime of the law. There was no immediate cure for the cancer of sin. In order to sustain the whole body of mankind until the new covenant of grace, God had to use the surgical knife to cut out life-threatening tumours. Cancer has to be taken out to its very last cell. The Amalekites had degenerated into a very serious threat. It's true also that in the Christian understanding, the children would enter eternal life with God. Once Jesus... Uh, comes the cure for sin can be given through him but let's remember that this was only possible because jesus became sin on the cross and took upon himself the fullness of god's justice this was not child abuse as god was in christ reconciling man to himself god took the slaughtering of sin into himself perhaps today we've lost sight of what a truly terrible thing sin is it is as awful as cancer god will still eradicate sin from his universe he's given time to each of us to take the one cure jesus I have to say, Justin, I needed the Holy Spirit to understand this. It's a hard one to comprehend. Uh, Mark Baster. Thank you very much. Afzal um, wants to say, uh, I'm assuming you're probably coming from an atheistic point of view, Afzal, uh, says, listening to your show regarding God's massacres in the Old Testament, do Christians realise that the one who's ordering these massacres and genocides is the same as Jesus? Please remember that Yahweh is the incarnate God Jesus, who is both man and God. When God commands the massacre of infants, it is Jesus who's commanding this. They're one and the same being. Christians seem to have the Marcion view, which is wrong. Hence, when the Old Testament God says, uh, I'll make you eat your children if you disobey me, it's Jesus who is saying this. I think I see the point you're trying to make there, um, Afzal. Uh, thanks for being in touch. Derek is an atheist, I happen to know. Uh, says, John Allister said, if children got caught up, it's ultimately their parents' fault. He was talking about close quarters fighting, not a city being bombarded with artillery. Well, if a child or unarmed man or woman died, it was because someone stabbed them with a sword or spear, nothing short of murder. This cannot be blamed on the parent. It's 100% the murderer's fault. And here's a John uh, Andrea in Nova Scotia, Canada, says, I've been listening to the podcast for a few years. They're often interesting and entertaining. Your most recent show, however, was simply horrifying in the way your guest, gone at, guest John Allister, a minister, justified the slaughter of innocent children. I present to you a short radio play, scene, an Amalekite family fleeing their burning city. Mother, run, children. Your father cannot protect you. He has died already at the hands of the attackers. Daughters, please, mother, our legs are too tired to continue running. Mother, if we stop here, the Israelites are prevented by their own law from killing us. You and the baby will be taken as slaves. Action. The attacking army overtakes the family and beheads them all as the soldiers scream, Yahweh commands your death. Voice over. Priest says, Yahweh didn't kill those children. Poor athletic skills killed those children. So, uh, well, I, I won't go on too much further, but um, lots of um, emails that, that uh, obviously very critical uh, of the way um, John handled that. Um, obviously, no atheist who's uh, responded has been convinced by the argument. Some Christians have suggested alternative ways of seeing this. Um, and thanks for those who've been in touch. Uh, obviously, as I said on last week's show, as a, as a, you know, objections to scripture, the Old Testament go, it is probably one of the hardest to um, to to tackle. Um, uh, Dave uh, just wanted to recommend a, a resource on this. Um, says Greg Boyd's "The Crucifixion of the Warrior God" is coming out in May this year. Uh, have you heard the podcast where he shares his thesis for how to reconcile passages in the Old Testament with the picture of God we have in Christ? His approach is completely novel, and he recommends checking out the 
podcast from Greg Boyd, um, his sermons at his uh, church in Canada, uh, particularly God's Shadow Activity from July the 15th and Shadow of the Cross July the 22nd. It's the best answer I've ever heard from someone with a high view of scripture, says Dave. Others are uh, recommending um, Paul Copen, who obviously is a past guest on this show, and the way he um, treats the uh, these particular types of Old Testament passages. Uh, Greg Kokel, uh, I think. I think I've been pronouncing it wrong. Kokel has uh, also been recommended by a few people, uh, such as Maria, who says, uh, you know that stand to reason, uh, Greg there takes a very little point of view. Uh, I think you'll enjoy how he develops his argument. I pray for you and your team. You're doing valuable kingdom work. Um, and this is um, uh, just gives a little sort of taster of Greg's article. Uh, which you can, I guess, find at the um, Re- Stand to Reason website, uh, where he says, This month I tackle the issue head-on. Having worked carefully through the text and the arguments, I'm no longer leery of answering the challenge. I hope you'll feel the same way after carefully reading The Canaanites, Genocide or Judgment. So if you want to check that out, why not uh, search for that online as well, Greg Kokel, with his particular response to the issue. So that was the debate and the email responses to it. But before I close out this episode, I wanted to make a few comments that I was unable to fit into the live discussion. First, I wanted to address the point about the Kenites. Now, if you recall, in the debate, John had claimed that Saul's offer to the Kenites to depart from the Amalekites in order to save themselves meant that the Amalekites could also have abandoned their people and had not been killed. I argued in response that the Kenites were actually destroyed by David later in 1 Samuel 27.10, and so that this response simply won't work. But I was wrong. John Allister and Justin Brierley were correct in pointing out that this was a misreading by me, and I thank them for that. Though I think it is largely irrelevant, because John's initial claim that the Amalekites had a chance to join the Kenites to avoid slaughter was, I think, an assertion that had no basis in the text, in that it assumed that the Kenites would have been willing to risk being slaughtered for protecting lying fugitives had they been had they been caught protecting them. And of course, we're given no reason to think that the Kenites had such a death wish. Moreover, even if we were to grant that the Kenites would have been willing to allow the Israelites to join them, the argument still ignores what the text actually says. We know from 1 Samuel 15.5 that when Saul got the cautionary message to the Kenites, Saul and his armies were already hiding in a valley nearby preparing an ambush. This is sometimes translated as lying in wait. Now because Saul and his Israelite armies were hiding, they obviously told the Kenites how to save themselves by private correspondence and not public declaration, as John would, would have you believe. A public declaration, of course, would have given up the fact that they were hiding nearby and were about to attack. John's interpretation requires that we imagine Saul and his armies stealthily hiding in a valley while at the same time making their location known by publicly announcing to the entire city, uh, or to the entire cities, that the Kenites could save themselves. John's claim that the Amalekites were actually aware of Saul's offer to the Kenites is not only absent from the text, it actually runs contrary to the coherency of the biblical narrative. It simply doesn't make sense under John's interpretation. This damages John's case in another way as well. 
Remember, during much of the debate, John was very adamant that the ancient Israelite army moved slowly toward the city, which allowed anybody to escape if they had wanted to, right? Non-combatants. Um, one has to wonder, though, what does John think an army is trying to do when they sneak up on the people they are supposed to destroy and hide near them waiting for a moment to attack? A sneak attack ambush serves no other purpose than to pounce on one's prey when they least expect it in order that you might be quick enough to destroy them all. They weren't trying to give non-combatants the opportunity to run. They were designing their military strategy for the exact opposite outcome. Now, another issue I want to address is the reasons given for the commanded destruction of the Amalekites. In our debate, John asserts that the destruction of the Amalekites was because uh, they were after Israelite blood for roughly 400 years. Um, and in his article, he writes that the, is, that the Amalekites were more than any other tribe after Israelite blood for roughly 400 years. Now, for this claim, John cites, among other verses, Judges 3.13 and Judges 6.3-5. In Judges 3.13, we read, in alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites, he, the king Eglon of Moab, went and defeated Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. Now this is curious because if we were to just read one verse earlier, we would see how this argument doesn't work. If we start at verse 12, we read the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord strengthened King Eglon against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So actually, the main thrust of the attack from the Moabites was the fault of Israel. God was using them to punish Israel. All that aside, though, of course, this is never actually given as the reason for why God commanded the slaughter of the Amalekites. Now to the next verse, Judges 6, 3-5. We read, for whenever the Israelites put in seed, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the land as far as the neighborhood of Gaza and leave no sustenance uh, in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. Now again, if we were to jump just two verses earlier than this, we would read, The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. The hand of Midian prevailed over Israel, and because of Midian, the Israelites provided for themselves hiding places uh, in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. So again, this attack is largely the Amalekites just joining up with a tribe that God was using to uh, punish the Israelites. We're never actually told this in John's paper, though. This attack also is never actually given as a reason for the attempted slaughter of the uh, Amalekites. Now, I argued in the debate that the massacre of the men, women, and children of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel was promised ever since their ancestors attacked Israel as they came up out of Egypt. Uh, we can read this in Exodus 17, hundreds of years prior. I also said that this is stated several times in the text. And if this is true, then the behavior of the Amalekites after that point cannot be used to justify their massacre without rewriting the text. So, is it true? Well, we can start in Exodus 17:14. We read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Please write this, and he's referring to the battle, on a scroll 
as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So, that seems pretty clear. This is a promise that he will eventually destroy Amalek. Next, we read in Deuteronomy 25, 17-19. Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey out of Egypt, how he attacked you on your way out when you were faint and weary and struck down all who had lagged behind you, and you did not fear God. Therefore, he's giving a reason here, therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies on every hand, in the land that the Lord God has given you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. So again, we have this consistent theme of do not forget. The Amalekites will eventually get what is coming to them. 1 Samuel 15, uh, 15 verse 2, we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way as he was coming out of Egypt. So again, we're given that as the reason here. How John can read anything other than this out of the text is beyond me. And one last point, in 1 Samuel 15.6, we read that the Kenites were spared for the same reason. God gives the reason for sparing the Kenites, and he refers back to that same battle. This only makes sense when we realize that the massacre of the Amalekites was because of the Egypt battle and not because of their behavior since. Now, I have one more point to make. In the debate, John argues Saul lost favor in God's eyes because he took things for personal gain and not because of his military inadequacy. This is wrong. Again, when we read the text, we see that later in 1 Samuel, that Samuel scolds Saul for not killing everything. Saul defends himself by saying that the only reason he kept livestock alive was to sacrifice them to Yahweh at a later date, and not for personal spoil, as John had claimed. God takes this seriously, right? The omniscient God believes Saul's reasons here, but then reminds him that he values absolute obedience over sacrifice. In other words, God believed Saul was genuine in his saving some items to sacrifice to God, but that was not what God asked of him. God asked him to destroy everything, and that's the reason God is mad. Now, there is plenty more to say about this debate, uh, but I think you get the point. So the question is, is God evil for slaughtering a people group because of what their ancestors did, as Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen and Ezekiel eighteen twenty would suggest? Well, I don't know. Perhaps John thinks, as many apologists do, that there is no such thing as an inappropriate use of God's power or commands. But of course, if that's the case, then why is John so transparently desperate to come to God's defense by ignoring the very words of God in his command and his reasons for that command? It seems to me that this sort of apologetic biblical revisionism betrays the extreme moral discomfort these people have with their own text. Rather than make sense of our moral intuitions, which is often the claim of the apologist, the character of God proudly violates our deepest and most obvious moral intuitions, to the point that even his followers, his church leaders, and his most ardent defenders are absolutely embarrassed by his words. Okay, that's the episode. Uh, we will be back with more episodes of Reasonable Doubts, your 
Skeptical Guide to Religion very soon. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.